Before we jump in, I want to thank my friends over at Samaritan's Purse for sponsoring today's episode. Every year, Samaritan's Purse puts together a project called Operation Christmas Child, where they give away millions of shoebox gifts to children in need around the world. It's the largest Christmas project of its kind. They've given away over 198 million gift boxes in 170 countries since 1993. Absolutely incredible. What I love about Operation Christmas Child is that they aren't just giving away shoe boxes to children in need, but instead they're using those boxes, those gifts, as a way to build relationships with local families, to share the gospel, and to make disciples. Millions of people around the world have heard the gospel as a result of receiving a shoe box. Operation Christmas Child is a great way for you as a dad to live on mission, to point your family back to Jesus, to serve together. It's super easy to get involved. You go to SamaritansPurse.org forward slash OCC. Again, that's SamaritansPurse.org forward slash OCC. You can learn about how to put a shoebox together. You can do this with your small group or your neighborhood, but I highly suggest that you get your family involved. Because of the size of this enormous project, boxes must be turned in by November 21st so they can be shipped off around the world. If you decide to do this, which I highly recommend that you do, you need to get started today by going to SamaritansPurse.org forward slash OCC. Again, that's SamaritansPurse.org forward slash OCC. Well, hey guys, welcome back to the Dad's Hired Podcast. Glad that you're here again. Before we jump into this interview with Eric, we're going to be talking about he wrote a book called Worthy, Celebrating the Value of Women. Eric has such a good way, this is the second time he's been on the podcast, but he has such a good way of saying hard things in such a gracious way. He often will say things that internally I'm like, I squirm and I'm like, oh man, this is a hot topic or this is a really highly debated topic. And yet he always comes back to these really hard topics, which I'm so grateful that he even is willing to have these conversations. But he always comes back to it with just like gospel truth and like, biblically based. And anyway, he does such a good job at saying like hard things with grace and truth. And so my encouragement, the reason I'm telling you all this is because as you go through the interview, you might feel that and you might feel like, oh, I've already got opinions on this. I would just say, dude, listen to the whole podcast. I actually thought some of the the strongest, like hardest hitting points that Eric made were toward the end of the podcast interview. And so just listen to the whole thing because I think you're going to be challenged throughout it. It's also another good podcast to listen to Uh, or an episode to listen to with your wife. I think she'll get a lot out of it too. And it will prompt a lot of good conversation for the two of you if you're married to listen together. But anyway, I'll jump out of the way and we will dive into my interview with Eric on his book, Worthy. Eric, it's super good to have you back, man. I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you. By the way, last time you were on, people just really enjoyed our last conversation when Mm. we were talking about some really heavy things. When it came to miscarriage specifically, I know that that episode was really helpful for a lot of people. So thank you for doing that. Yeah. Uh, Today we're talking about your book, Worthy. Subtitle of that book is Celebrating the Value of Women. And some people might, that maybe just might be confused right off the bat because they're like, okay, this is a dad podcast and now we have two men talking about women. (laughs) So it's like, what's what's the goal here? I guess maybe... From a high level perspective, I'm always curious, you know, what prompted you to think I should probably write a book about the value of women? Hmm. Thanks for having me back on, Jared. It's yeah, really enjoyed my time last time and thrilled to be back with you and, and your community of men. The value of women, you know, it sort of started, oh man, it, I mean, the story, like, I guess, like everything goes way back, but, you know, I was, oh, from probably high school on, I was sort of just, 
I guess what I call myself is I, I still am very conservative in my viewpoints in theology and politics, but I was sort of a knee jerk conservative emphasis, maybe on jerk. And uh, <laughs> my immediate re response to most things was to write it off, uh, unless it was in my own interests. And, and part of that had to do with how I viewed things like allegations of abuse, whether that was from women or minorities or that sort of thing. And then, you know, I went through a period of some really tough times as a pastor, some church conflict, big mm. church split, where in a lot of ways, I'm sure I did a ton of things wrong. I'll never claim to be a perfect pastor, but there were ways in which I thought people treated me unfairly, that there were false things said about me, unfair things done. And, and sometimes I wished that there were more people speaking up and advocating for me. It sort of opened my eyes to feel sympathy for people who were suffering and maybe not being listened to. I think it was when the Eric Garner killing happened out east where he was choked to death by a police officer selling, I think, unlicensed cigarettes. And most of the time I would have written those stories off and not watched those videos and said, well, there's probably something he did. I just decided I'm going to watch this whole video and see what it's about. And watching it start to finish, I was just thinking, there's no reason for this. This should not have happened. You don't choke a guy to death in the street like a dog, you know, mm -hmm. for selling cigarettes. And I just started listening to more and more of those, of those stories from people of color. And, and then when the Me Too movement rolled around, I just thought, I need to listen to these stories too, these stories of women and the ways they've been mistreated. And then that quickly became Church Too, where there were stories right. of women being abused and mistreated in the church. And I thought, oh, I, I really need to listen to those. And around the same time, there were stories of allegations of sexual abuse cover-up and mishandling by a pastor that was in some circles that I really respected. And I'd heard like accounts of what really happened, quote-unquote, and just took it kind of hook, line, and sinker and believed it because it was from people I knew and I trusted and never looked into it. And then listening to Rachel Den Hollander present some evidence that I read, and I just thought, I haven't heard any good responses to this and, and sort of realized that the explanation that I was hearing was not true and not accurate. And I'm not saying the person who told me that was lying to me. I'm just saying that it didn't add up. And I just thought, in listening to some of her experiences and advocating for the abused in the church and the way that her church responded to her, it just resonated with me right away and said, yeah, this is... I, I can totally believe this, and this is probably how I would have responded in a similar situation. So it just got me listening to women, asking women in my church, like, what's your experience been as a woman in the church? Some have great experiences, and some have had not so great experiences, and then started looking for women in the Bible, and just going, you know, I had developed a view, um, a theology of manhood and womanhood that, again, I had sort of just consumed because I trusted all the authors. And that's not to say that they did anything wrong, but I did it uncritically. I wasn't going back and looking at God's Word closely. I was just saying, I trust these people, so I'll believe whatever they write. Mm -hmm. And so I'd always wanted to sort of go back and walk through the Bible and say, okay, is it saying what I've believed it to be saying? And some of that was, I was firm on some, I'm fairly conservative on my views, 
and really haven't shifted there. But some of it was I was seeing implications, like people drawing out implications from what the Bible said that weren't necessarily, they didn't necessarily follow. And then there were rules for men and women based off of what those implications were. And so we were kind of making, it just felt to me like we were stretching things a bit too thin. And I wanted to just go back through the Bible and look at it for myself. And so with that in mind, I think Karen Swallow Pryor had tweeted something out about, you know, the first deacons, the proto-deacons were created to because women were being abused in, in a mm. sense. You know, there are widows being denied food and overlooked mm. based on their ethnicity. And so it was, you know, it was women that sort of promoted this, this need there and protecting them. And so I just started looking through the Bible for the places that women were the first to do things or associated with the start of things. And it became a list of, I forget how many items that women were the first in the Bible, you know, to speak the name Yahweh and to mm. give a name to God and, and these sorts of things. So I, I published that on Twitter, and the Gospel Coalition asked me to turn it into an article, and, and Elise Fitzpatrick asked me to come on her podcast and talk about the article, and she said, you should turn this into a book. Mm. And I said, yeah, you should write it with me, because <laughs> I knew no one would publish me, <laughs> and, and I like Elise. But... It was just like a dream come true and an answer to prayer to be able to just basically what we wanted to do was sit down mm. and we divided the Bible up into sort of epochs of or areas of redemptive mm. history, like the storyline of the Bible. Mm. And so we're just going to walk through and just read it and ask the question, where do women show up in this part of the Bible? And then mm. just make observations about their value and how God uses them and works through them in that part of the storyline of the Bible. And it was just sort of paradigm sh shifting for me mm. to see just how central women are to that story and how valuable they are in it. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I, that we encountered as we wrote the book, you know, I would tell people, I'm writing a book about the value of women in the storyline of the Bible. And, and I have pastors, you know, say to me, oh, that sounds awesome. I'm going to buy that for my wife. Or, you know, mm. we'll have the women in our church go through that. And we've never marketed it as a book for women. We fought to have it have almost a masculine cover. It's a very strong cover because we wanted something that men w wouldn't be embarrassed to yeah, be yeah. carrying around. And, and we've always fought for it to be a book that we've marketed to men and to women because the reason women were created was because it's not good for men to be alone. And men should care about the value and purpose of women just as much as as much as women do. So thankful for Bethany House that uh, came along and said, yeah, we believe in this project and mm. did really well with it. Yeah. There are multiple reasons why I think that this conversation is important. One, on a personal note, I have three daughters, you know, mm -hmm. so I just, I'm surrounded by a lot of women <laughs> in my home. Yeah. Yep. And so this is something I just want to explore more and be confident in what the scriptures say mm -hmm. about women. But another reason is, and, and one of the reasons that we do this podcast is we're trying to equip dads to really think through the lies that the world will be telling our kids. Yeah. Obviously, the world's telling us lies and we have to think through those, but they're also going to be, our kids are going to be bombarded. They are being bombarded by yeah. the lies of the culture trying to influence and shape our children. And one of those that is prevalent is well, I don't believe in your God, or I don't want to even read mm -hmm. your Bible because women have no value. You guys mm -hmm. are just a bunch of men who tell women what to do, and they have no place. That's a really common argument in the world. And so I guess maybe 
let's just rewind all the way back to the very beginning of scriptures when we go back to Genesis and oh. God creates man right in the very you know first two pages of most people's Bible mm-hmm. there's going to be controversy <laughs> yeah. in the world you know yeah. um, so let's start unpacking it there and yeah. uh, I, I know you start talking about that in the book so I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts from the very beginning so yeah that's the the first place that we encounter women is uh, when it's the Lord says let us make man in our own image and it says you know in the image of God he created him male and female he created them so man there is just the name for the species and it says that in Genesis 5 5 that he named them man and man is male and female there's a, a male man and a female man and they're both equally in the image of God and in 2022 that's going to be super confusing for people yes it is <laughs> it is like oh geez Jared's gone off the rails I need to unsubscribe <laughs> yeah to what you mean by that from a theological yes perspective. and so breaking down so people are yeah like, what does that mean dude yeah so the the word man comes from the Hebrew Adam which is where the first male gets his name and so we would maybe today say human so he named them human, but the word is literally man, which I think is good because it really displays their equality. And what I'm not saying there is that you can be a male human being and identify as a female or vice versa. What we are saying is that he made uh, human beings in two genders, male and female, and both of them are equally made in the image of God, image and likeness of God. And uh, we probably don't have time to dig into all those details, but likeness is used later to refer to the similarity between Adam and his offspring. It speaks to a father-child sort Mm. of similarity and relationship. And image is in the ancient Near Eastern culture that, you know, Moses was writing in, and well, we see it today too. When a king would take over a land, a ruler would take over a land, he would erect images, statues of himself to remind those nations he's taken over of who reigns and who rules there. It was representative of the king. And so to be made in God's image means we're representative rulers. Mm-hmm. And our task as human beings is to rule the earth in a way that reflects what God is like. And then he says, you know, let them have dominion. Uh, you know, he blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and exercise dominion over the, the things that dwell in it. And he didn't say that we were to exercise dominion over each other, that we were to rule each other, but that together we were to rule and exercise dominion on the face of the earth. So right there we have this idea of companionship and cooperation in the same task, that mm. we are both to cooperate together in fulfilling God's mission and mandate to see the earth filled with his image of human beings ruling all things in a way that shows creation what God is like. Mm. And then we get into Genesis 2, and it sort of zooms in on the creation of human beings, how we got the man and the woman. You know, it begins with God creating this garden in Eden. And and again, there's a lot of details we could go into, but one of the things that's important there is we see Eden pictured as sort of a, a high place, a mountain place. You know, there's rivers that run out of it in all directions, which means it's an elevated place. There's gold and precious stones, those sorts of things located there. And God plants a garden there and makes it very, very fruitful. 
And all of that is imagery that we'll see later on in the tabernacle and then in the temple. And that wasn't pointing to the temple or the tabernacle. They were pointing back to Eden and God reestablishing his dwelling place with his people. But Adam, God creates Adam from the dirt, puts him in there, and it says he puts him in there to guard and to keep it. And those two terms are used by Moses elsewhere in Numbers to speak of the Levitical priesthood who would serve God in his temple. And so the image we have here is of human beings being both rulers and also priests to God, um, offering spiritual service to him and mediating his presence to the world, which is really interesting because that's what Moses tells Israel, that God has redeemed them to be a nation of kings and priests. And Revelation uh, 4 or 5, you know, praising the Lamb because with your blood you have purchased people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation and made them kings and priests to our mm-hmm. God. So Adam's put there to be this, this priestly servant, a king and a priest. And if you've been reading through Genesis, and I assume many of your listeners are familiar with it, you have this refrain, and God saw you know, what, all that he had made, and it was, it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And then after he creates man, he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. And that not good is like, it's not just like, this is less than preferable. This is categorically bad. This is really, really not good. It's a break in that refrain to tell us we need to pay attention because it's significant that man, this male, was not created to exist alone. And so the Lord says, I'll make a helper for him. And that word for helper isn't like, you know, you have one of your daughters or I have my son or my daughter in the kitchen making cookies with us and their daddy's little helper and they're making a big old mess and it actually takes longer to make the cookies with the helper there than without them or like i could get this done but i can do it faster if i have some help you know an assistant it's not like that this is the word azer azer connecto is a it means a strong ally and the word is used most often of god in the old testament and so God is a helper. And so if you think of helper as subordinate or less important or less powerful or nice but not necessary, then that's an insult to God. He is Israel's helper, and he has given them a mandate, a way that they are supposed to, you know, things they're supposed to do, displacing nations in their land and living in that land and blessing the nations. But God comes alongside them as their helper, and he uses his great strength to aid them and enable them to accomplish their purpose. Mm. And so that's what woman is to man. She brings strength to come alongside man and join him, cooperate with him in the task that they've been given really together. And apart from her, he can't accomplish it. He Mm. can't fill the earth. He can't exercise dominion over the earth apart from her. And it's significant that after God says, it's not good for man to be alone. He prays all these animals before the man to name them. And they're all helpful, but none of them is a helper. And that's just to really emphasize the point that's coming is, you know, there's no helper found that's fit for him. And so the Lord puts Adam into a deep sleep and he doesn't make this helper out of the dust. He makes the helper intentionally. He scoops out a part of Adam's side and fashions it into a woman. And the significance of that is she's made from the same stuff as him. 
and therefore has the same purpose and significance as him. You know, it's not like he made her out of separate dust and then gave her a separate purpose. But, and that's exactly what he says when he wakes up. He says, at long last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She's the same stuff as me. Instead of emphasizing differences, Genesis and Adam emphasize similarity. She is the same as me. And Moses says, therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they'll become one, one flesh. And basically, you see this, this emphasis here. They're created for the same purpose, with the same significance, and to cooperate in the same task. And the culmination of that is that this man and this woman will pursue unity with one another as they accomplish the Lord's purposes together. And that's really how we should be viewing women as men, is that they are necessary allies for us to do God's work in the world. And, you know, you can flesh that out all the way through the Bible, where we see men and women cooperating in the New Testament church to accomplish the work of the gospel. And even Jesus, you know, he's coming to redeem his bride, to pursue unity with her, to make her one with him. And the last use of the word reign in all the Bible is they shall reign with him. And, you know, no, actually, it's they shall reign on earth. And the they is God's people, the bride of Christ. So we see this husband and his bride reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. And, of course, what's gone wrong in all that is the entrance of sin. And they rebel in the garden. Adam, you know, eats the forbidden fruit, and sin and death enters the world. And there's the first sin that brings death is Adam's eating. And the next thing we see Adam do wrong, uh, you know, in a sinful way is God comes and asks him, did you eat? And he's like, well, the woman that you gave me, she, she gave me the fruit yeah. and I ate. Yeah. Our, and our arguments as men have remained the same for a thousand Yes, years. they have. They have. <laughs> the woman and, and well, he's technically, it's technically true. The woman did give him the fruit and he did eat. He's trying to shift the blame there. Right. And we see he's the one who God holds accountable because mm. he's the head of all humanity at that point. And he is perfectly willing to let her take all the blame and all the consequences mm. of this action. And that's really an act of abuse to say, I'm going to exploit her for my own gain at cost to her. Mm. And that simply elevates as the, you know, as soon as Genesis chapter four rolls around, Cain is the seed of the devil. He's evil. He murders his brother. We trace that uh, his descendants there, Moses is tracing them. And we get to this man named Lamech. And it says that he calls his two wives, you know, his wives to him. And all of a sudden we have a man that instead of pursuing one flesh unity with another woman, he's collecting wives, so to speak. And he says to them, basically he says, behold, basically I've killed a man for merely striking me. A man wounded me or struck me, and so I killed him. And it's interesting that he's calling his wives to him. And what he wants his wives in particular to know is that he responds with lethal vengeance to anyone that offends him or upsets him. And so there's really this strong threat of domestic violence against his wives. And that in some ways typifies how we see women being treated throughout the rest of the Bible is this 
and in the world and in history. You know, they have been, you know, the bulk of abusers are men and often it's women and children that receive that abuse. Not that it doesn't go the other way, that can happen, but usually it's men using their, their physical advantage, their strength and power to manipulate and abuse and use and use women. Yeah. I guess I've probably said enough there. Yeah. yeah. That was a little bit of a roller coaster of emotions because we I was really inspired yeah. when we were talking about the cooperation. <laughs> you know, it's like, mm-hmm. man, how, what a beautiful picture. So I want to come back to both of those things, what we how yeah. we just talked about kind of there toward the end. But I want to go back, I want to pause on kind of the 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 women throughout scripture who have really been part of God's story. I want to mm-hmm. I want to go back mm-hmm. to that because I think that's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. But I want to pause for a second and just go back to the part where you were talking about this cooperation when God made a helper. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, I love how you said, it's not just this assistant. I could do it without you, but you know, it's kind of nice to have some extra hands. Like we're co-laboring together for the glory mm-hmm. of God. Just, if we could zoom into a household that yeah. God is, there's guys listening to this right now and they're thinking about their personal marriage in their mm-hmm. home under their roof. What is a beautiful redemptive picture mm. look like of a husband and wife, man and woman yeah. saying we're in this together for the glory of God. Like, can you kind of paint that picture for us? What that yeah. could, it could look like? I'll start a little bit abstract with that just because that's where Paul starts. You know, when he says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And so when Paul talks about headship in marriage and submission in marriage, he doesn't really define like in particulars what exactly it looks like for a man mm. to be the head of his wife or to be a husband. He points us to Jesus and yeah. says, here's what Jesus did. He gave himself up for her. I don't have the passage perfectly memorized, but essentially, you know, washing her with the water of the word. And then Paul goes on to speak about, because you don't mistreat your own flesh that she's one. And really he paints this picture of what it looked like for Jesus to be a husband was to lay aside his own interests and in fact to suffer harm and to sacrifice so that his wife could flourish mm. and be could could be one with him and then partner with him in their mutual task of essentially the great commission which is what we see at the end of Genesis 2, right? The man will leave his father and mother. There's leaving your own family is leaving safety. It's leaving comfort and saying, I'm forsaking everything to be unified with her. There's a sacrificial choice to be made there. And so I think in a home, sometimes I think particularly in Christian circles, we can say, okay, now the man has his calling and what it means for the wife to submit is for her to lay aside her interests and to devote her life to helping her husband be successful in his calling, whatever that might be. I want to push back on that because the picture we see in Genesis is they have the same calling. And Jesus, you know, being fully divine, didn't count his divinity as a quality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant even to the point of death, so that he could redeem his bride. He didn't come and say to us, even though we are servants of Christ, he says, I don't call you slaves anymore. I call you friends. Mm -hmm. He didn't come to be served. 
He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, is what he tells his disciples. You know, the great person doesn't lord it over another. Instead, he serves, even to the point of death. And so, to be a husband isn't to say, I have this calling and vision for my, my life, and I need my wife to give up all of her interests and devote all of herself to helping me see this particular calling come to fruition. It is, the Lord has called us both as believers in Jesus to fulfill his great commission. And we're to do that through our home, through the raising of our children, through whatever vocation he might call us to. And we need together to be unified with one another as one flesh so that we can cooperate together in accomplishing that mission. And so the man isn't going to leave his wife alone to do all the stuff in the home so that he can go off and do whatever he feels like his calling is. In fact, he might have a great passion for a work, and he might be very equipped for that work, very skillful in it. But if him doing it and the way he's doing it is causing his wife to shrivel up and die and the kids to be neglected, if she's not flourishing, then I think what it looks like is for him to say, I'm going to look to the interests of others and not to my own. I'm going to be willing to say no to this and do something that other people might think is crazy for the sake of seeing my wife flourish Mm. and my children flourish so that together we can glorify God in this world. Mm. Really beautifully said, man. That's really inspiring. I want to read that passage in Ephesians that you mentioned because I think Mm -hmm. it's it's worth putting it out there for the guys to hear in full context. But it just says, this is Ephesians 5. 25, 27, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed Mm. her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing and that she might be holy and without blemish. As you were describing that, I wonder if there's kind of two groups. There's one, maybe if we just create a spectrum here and we'll go kind of polar opposite extreme just to make a point. So one, you have maybe a guy who is like, this is my home. I make the rules here. I provide for our family. I'm the breadwinner. You Mm -hmm. listen to what I say. Mm -hmm. And so maybe he's real dominant, borderline abusive, if not abusive. Mm -hmm. And everybody, this is my kingdom and everybody's here just to serve me and make sure that I'm getting my stuff done. So there's that guy or variations of that guy. And then on the other side, I wonder if there are guys who genuinely want to lead their family well. Mm-hmm. They see themselves as the leader. They're trying to lead. I mean, the whole reason you part of dad tired is because you're like, man, I, I think God's calling me to lead my family. I want to be a humble servant leader. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if on this side of the spectrum, there are some guys who are taking too much ownership of yeah. leading the family in an unhealthy way, even in their humility, by not having their wife be a co-laborer with them. Yeah, And so yep. these guys are quietly suffering. Because they feel all the burden of, you know, I really want to lead my family, but I feel like I'm doing this on my own. I feel like I'm letting my wife down. I feel like I'm letting my kids down. And I wonder if there's some beautiful redemption in there where it's like, bro, God is calling you to lead and to lead humbly Mm -hmm. and to serve Mm -hmm. and to give up. But also your wife has gifts and contributions, wisdom, and like God has created you together to accomplish his tasks. 
through you. So I don't know if that made sense, but yeah, I, that makes total sense. To that if, it, if it does. On the one hand, you have guys that are going to be almost tyrants and they sound a lot more like Lamech, like this is my home and I'm laying down the rules and beware of crossing me. Yeah. And then you have the guys who are like, okay, I want to step up and I want to be this leader and they're exhausting themselves. And in doing so, they're actually not allowing their wife to come alongside and be an ally who lends her strength. And I would really challenge, you know, this has been a challenge for me. We talk a lot about leadership and, you know, that depends on how you define leadership in terms of influence or whatever it might be. But as I've been thinking about these things and writing about these things, uh, especially in Elise and I's last book, Jesus and Gender, which talks about how men and women should be cooperating in the kingdom, I looked hard for where does the New Testament use the term leader in the context of a husband? Mm. And I think sometimes that's been provided to us by well-intended Christian ministries and teachers and that sort of thing. And there is this, I think, especially in the last maybe 20 years, there's been this real obsession with leadership in the church. You know, we hear a lot about it in the business world, Mm -hmm. but, you know, as a pastor, I hear all the time, like, how do you develop leaders? How do you develop leaders? How do you develop leaders? And, you know, when the disciples are debating, like, who gets to be number two and number three in the kingdom, you know, next to Jesus, and he talks about, you know, the rulers in the world, the leaders, they lord it over you. But among my disciples, it's not to be like that. And he says, whoever would be great amongst you must be a servant to all. And for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the dominant theme of New Testament life is that of servant, of serving. And God didn't send in Isaiah 53, the suffering leader. He sent the suffering servant. Mm. And even though Jesus is king, And there's a leadership quality to that, definitely. He leads us. He's our shepherd and so forth. But his chosen and dominant theme is that of being a servant. And so it's interesting that in talk of of manhood, there's often this talk of servant leadership. But leadership is the operative word there, and servant is functioning as the adjective. And maybe instead we should think of ourselves as husbands as being the lead servant who the servant is the operative word there. It's what we're aiming for, to be a servant. And we're the one who leads in the area of service. We're the first to sacrifice. We're the first to serve. And part of that is sometimes readjusting our idea of leadership. Does does the New Testament tell us the husband is the, even though he's the head of his wife, is he the only one that can lead in a marriage and family? Mm. And sometimes I think we as dads get tired because we think we have to take the initiative in every single area of family life. And I don't see that, you know, even in Proverbs 31, where the king is, his mom's giving him advice about what kind of woman to look for is to be the wife of a king. She takes a ton of initiative. And sometimes as husbands, we need to say to our wives, you're really gifted here. You're really skilled. You're really wise beyond me. And I want you to take full initiative here. Like you figure this area out. Tell me how I can help. How can I come alongside you and lend aid in this area? So maybe he's not skilled with finances and she is. And he says, I really don't even know how to think about our financial future and budgeting and all that stuff. But you're really good at that. Could you come up with the budget? Could you come up with a our retirement plan or whatever it might be? And yeah. 
and show me what to do. I think that's, we see that in, you know, Paul's an apostle, but when he goes to Macedonia, you know, the first people he comes across is Lydia and uh, the women who are working with her. You know, she's a businesswoman. She's running this uh, dye company. I think we learn in the New Testament, she has a house in maybe two cities, you know, she's doing well. And like, she tells Paul, like, you guys need to stay with me in my house. Like, and she like insists and says, you know, that she really kind of prevailed upon them, like persuaded them. Paul wasn't insulted by this woman taking the initiative and making provision. She takes the initiative for provision with the, you know, the first church planters there in Europe and the first church plants. And we as men, I think sometimes are concerned for being the one that's in charge, taking the initiative, making the decisions. I wonder sometimes if it has more to do with our pride at being the first one, you know, being great in the home versus actually being concerned about what manhood and womanhood is really about. Man, for you who are listening, I would just say go back, like hit the back 15 or back 30 seconds, whatever your app shows, and just hit that button like four times so that you, you go back and listen to what Eric just said. When you do that, then just ask like, Spirit, would you speak to me here? And would you give me clarity on what I need to take from this? in my own marriage. For me personally, when I got married and really tried to like, you know, I was younger and dumber than I am now and was just like, okay, I need to lead my family well. Mm -hmm. What I found myself doing was often getting frustrated at Layla, my wife, Mm. because she, her personality didn't seem to complement my wannabe leadership. Mm. (laughs) I wanted to make decisions and she had different opinions about Mm -hmm. where we should go. Mm-hmm. And so as a young leader, I'm like, well, come on, you just, I think I'm right. <laughs> just do mm-hmm. what I think is right. And that caused a lot of problems. And now what I'm learning is, and I think our marriage has grown so much, is to look at my wife and say, holy cow, God has gifted her in a lot of really, really good areas. Yeah. And, and in fact, not just great areas, but areas like you mentioned, things that I suck at. Yeah. And, and she has gifts that I do not possess. Yeah. And so leadership doesn't mean me saying, well, I guess we're not going to use those because I'm the leader. God put me in charge. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess we, yep. she's not going to be able to exercise those gifts. Yeah. Uh, leadership is saying, okay, I see those in her. And mm-hmm. some of the leadership has even been to call those out in her that she might not even recognize as yes. gifts. Yes. I think that's some of the times I've felt has been the most beautiful parts of our marriage was, babe, you're really, really good at this. And it might be so second nature to her that she didn't even know this is a gift of leadership that God has put in her. Yeah. And so to really call that out, babe, this is what I see in you. Like God God has gifted you in this. I think God wants you to lead our family in this. And you gave so many great examples there. Maybe finance is one of them or whatever, but so many other examples we could mention. I guess what I would say to the guy listening right now is, uh, man, what would it look like instead of being a dad tired... (laughs) super cheesy or exhausted mm-hmm. because you're trying to carry all, you're trying to shoulder all the leadership on your own. I wonder if it might be more beneficial and God honoring and redemptive and beautiful if your leadership is to say, who has put, what kind of gifts has God given us in this team, both in my wife yeah. and in my children? Where do I need to submit and fall back and let them rise mm-hmm. up? I wonder if those are the best leadership mm. qualities that we could actually yeah. Express and show. 
I love what you said about just being that I want to be the first to serve. How did you mm. say that? That was so beautifully said. The uh, lead servant. Lead servant. Yeah. I love what you said there. And I would encourage the guys that as they go back and listen and ask the Holy Spirit to show them what they need to hear there, maybe after you've asked the Holy Spirit to show you, the next best step is to listen through that with your wife Yeah, and ask the question to her, say, just be totally straight up with me, like, does this describe us? Mm. Does this describe me as a dad and as a husband? Help me <laughs> see my blind spots there. And I completely identify with what you're saying about being a young husband and a young dad. And I think sometimes one of the mistakes we make is we have this idea of complementarity, which is good because God made us to fit together and complement one another. But I think sometimes we as men can think, well, we're supposed to be leaders. We're supposed to take the initiative. So what that means is my wife needs to adjust and she needs to become like me in how I'm going to do this. Now, in the relationship between Christ and the church, there is some of that because he is definitely conforming his church into his image. It's the body of Christ. But I would have us notice the first step was he became like us. He condescended and took on human nature, and he became like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could be a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to be in our shoes or sandals so to speak. And therefore, he knows how to help us, and he knows how to live with us, and he knows how to lead us. And so our first step is not to tell our wives, become like me so this family can work. It is to humble ourselves like Jesus and to become like them, like to, and I don't mean humble, like our wife is in a lower place than us. I mean, like, humble ourselves to say, I'm not the most important thing in this picture. And yeah. we together are, you know, Jesus didn't look to his own interests. He looked to ours, our interests so that we could be redeemed and we could be with him and we could reign with him. And so he's going to say, I want to know you. Like, I want to know who you are mm. so that I can know how best we together can cooperate in the raising of these children and evangelizing of the world and and all that sort of thing. And then as you do that, she becomes more like you too. And really, all of the commands in the New Testament for how we become more like Jesus have to do with looking at how he became like us and served us through his death for our sins and resurrection from the dead. We're transformed into his image by watching him. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, so much of where our world is at today is a response to how men have failed in many of the areas. So it swings, mm -hmm. the pendulum always swings real hard and it's like, well, men are worthless or, or what, <laughs> all, we could go on and on. But I guess it just feels like it would be really hard to argue if we had more leaders, more pastors and churches uh, teaching this message of like, man, actually what you're called to do, what your leadership looks like in the home is actually servanthood. Mm -hmm. Like what? And if you dedicate your life to, I'm laying down my life for the sake of my wife and for my kids and the glory of God, it's just really hard to argue, you know? It's yeah, like, yeah. Sadly, that, you know, that just hasn't, I think one of my concerns and maybe one of the things I lament is that I think what the church, the model of biblical manhood and womanhood, the church has been focusing on, I think for 
40 years or so, you know, has been role focused. Mm. Who does what? And it hasn't been gospel focused. The actual gospel of Christ dying for our sins and being raised from the dead and what that means. I mean, we say that we should lead like him, but it feels like we've started with who can do what Mm. and who has what role. And then we use the gospel to supplement that Mm. instead of starting with the gospel as the centerpiece of what it means to be men and women and saying, okay, what comes out of that? And that's what I think the New Testament does. Yeah. Can you break that? Give us a practical example of that. Like, what would that look like practically? What kind of phrases would somebody say? Like, when you hear something, it's like, oh, man, that you're actually talking more role-based and not gospel-based. Can yeah. You give us some phrases or something that make that a little more tangible. So I think when a husband comes to a pastor and says, I want to know what it means to be a good husband to my wife, and our response is, well, you need to take initiative for leadership and provision and protection. That means, you know, if there's a problem, you need to be the one that steps forward to solve it. And, you know, maybe you're doing premarital counseling and, you know, you as a wife need to have an attitude of submission that you're willing to follow your husband's lead and support him in what, in the decisions that he makes on behalf of the family. I think a better answer is, well, let's look at the gospel there. The primary thing we see in Jesus is love. And what does that love look like? Well, he laid down his life for his bride so that she could be washed and cleansed. We, we were filthy with our own sin and death, and he washed us to make us clean so that we could flourish, so that we could be the image of God that he created us to be. And uh, he did that at cost to himself by taking her sin upon himself. He wasn't angry with her. He loved her Mm. and he sacrificed for her. And he made her one with him. You know, we're united with Christ on the basis of grace through faith. And so to love your wife means to adopt the mindset of Christ, who, though he was in the image of God, didn't count that as something to be exploited, but humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant, suffering, you know, becoming a servant and obedient even to the point of death. And then looking at the wife and saying, well, let's look at the gospel as Jesus has served us in this way. How does the church respond to this? The response of any believers, first and foremost, faith, which is to say, I want to be united with who you are and what you've done for me. And I'm willing to lay aside everything in the world to be Christ's and to be about the work of his kingdom. And it's no longer my kingdom but it's the kingdom that he's brought me into through the forgiveness of sins. And I want to make that what I'm all about. And I want to serve with Christ as his bride. And so then really the answer is the same thing that we've said to men is look at Jesus, who though he was equal with God, didn't exploit that, but humbled himself to serve. Really those two parts in Ephesians for husbands and wives, love your wife and submit to your husband are actually asking the same thing, Mm. which is lay aside your own interests to cooperate and join with the other for their good. We follow Christ and serve him for his glory. He lays down his life for our redemption. Both are to come in with this mindset that 
looks like Jesus. It's the mind of Christ. And it portrays the gospel. So we can get really caught up in like, what are the rules here? When am I overstepping my bounds as a wife and, you know, stepping on my husband's leadership? When am I being too passive as a husband? When really I think if our focus isn't on what's the rule here for men and women and the boundaries instead, like, how can I look like Jesus to the fullest extent? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's good. Well, I'm bummed we're out of time, but one thing I just want to end with here, I think it's important to tell the guys, being the lead servant in your home does not mean having to be weak. And I think Mm -hmm. that there's sometimes we think through like, okay, well, I just need to put a set aside my masculinity and just kind of be, I don't think there's going to be a lot of guys that take, take you know, that's their takeaway. But I just want to say like, I think we need strong men, but I think you can be a strong man and the lead servant and those Mm -hmm. things perfectly coexist. Yeah. In fact, I think the strongest men are the one who are willing to lay their lives down. Jesus was not a weak man, even though he, he served and gave up his life, Mm -hmm. laid down his life. And so I think what often happens is you have a lot of quote unquote strong men who are actually really insecure men Yes, and they need people who to serve them because it it feeds off of their insecurities. Some of the most confident, strongest leaders that I've ever seen are actually the most humble men uh, and women who know how to serve and who give up their life. And I Mm -hmm. look at them and I'm like, man, that's a strong, they're confident. Yes. And so Please, when you listen to this episode, don't think, well, I guess I just need to kind of be timid and, you know, a doormat and be this, you know, no, dude, be confident in who you are in Christ, mm-hmm. you're the son of God, mm-hmm. and your confidence comes in. I know what God's called me to. I'm not going to play around in the dumb stuff and waste my time with little things, but I'm, I'm on a mission to see God's glory reign in my home and my life and my heart and in the world around me. And so I'm focused and I'm intentional and I'm living life with a purpose I've got a, a woman who's near me. I want to see her raised up and for the glory mm-hmm. of God to co- work as co-laborers to see God's glory. And um, dude, there's just, there's just so much strength in that. And so I yeah. just don't want a guy to to walk away with anything other than that. But yeah, Eric, man, this has been really, really good for you guys that are watching on YouTube. I'm trying to remember to put these on YouTube more, but you did a good job on the cover. Or they did a good job. It does look. <laughs> yeah, I, like, I love okay, it. I could read this at a, and on an airplane or in the. In a coffee shop or something in it, you feel confident reading it. But I feel like, dude, we got like to the introduction of the book and then I sidetracked <laughs> us. So oh, that's fine. But I'll have all the guys go pick up a copy of Worthy Celebrating the Value of Women. We'll put a, a link in the show notes. I really enjoy talking to you and you always give me good perspectives mm-hmm. and ways to think about things I hadn't thought about. So I, I'm, I'm really grateful you took the time to come back and spend some time with us again. Yeah, likewise. I, I, I really enjoy the time with you, Jared, and really appreciate what you're doing with Dad Tired and the community and just to encourage the guys to keep at it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you, man. Have a good rest of your day. All right, you too.